Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 98 called Amy. Today's episode is sponsored by Vios Fertility Institute. You guys, I've had the pleasure of working with Vios for Fertility Rally, and I cannot say enough good things about how much Vios gets it when it comes to infertility, fertility, and the patient experience. Vios is built on a foundation of patient-centered care, evidence-based medicine, and innovative technology. They have clinic locations throughout the country and patients from around the globe. And as a patient, you'll notice a difference from your very first phone call to the team celebration of your positive pregnancy test and everything in between. Bios physicians are board certified and fellowship trained reproductive endocrinologists and infertility specialists. Many of them have also experienced fertility treatment or a struggle to build their own family firsthand. The Bios Fertility Institute team works to create an individualized plan best suited for a patient's emotional, physical, and financial needs. I got to know Vios first through their social media handle, and I'm super impressed by their commitment to the fertility community overall. Through Instagram, Facebook, their blog, and other social media, they offer great resources and credible fertility education. Check them out in all the social places at Vios Fertility, and check out the blog on their website, viosfertility.com. To learn more about Vios, to take advantage of that education and fertility information, or to schedule your first appointment, visit viosfertility.com. That's V-I-O-S-F-E-R-T-I-L-I-T-Y.com. Thanks, Vios. Okay, guys. So today I am so honored and excited to talk to Amy who is the founder of I Was Supposed to Have a Baby, which is an Instagram account and website and an organization that helps the Jewish community. So Amy has an infertility story of her own, which we're going to talk about, but she started this organization because she was asking herself, why is the Jewish community so closeted about this issue? Why is nobody talking about this? They are more now, thanks to her. So today we're going to get into her whole story She is a member of the modern Orthodox Jewish community. So in her words, she tries to straddle the modern world while still upholding the ideals and basic tenets of the religion. So we're going to talk about a lot of the different Jewish sects and how a lot of them have different kind of rules and thoughts about reproduction and family building. Super interesting. Amy's awesome. And we are going to get into all of it. So Amy, thank you so much. And without further ado... This is Amy's infertility story. Amy, hey girl, how are you today? I am good. I am good. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you. We've been trying to get on for a little bit, so I'm glad we finally nailed it down. So as always, we're just going to kind of start at the beginning and what you were like growing up and if you always wanted to be a mom and have kids and all that stuff. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think I was probably, you know, your, your typical kid always dreaming of the next thing. I you know, had dreams about having a large family, about being married, not too old. And 
I was not the type of person that sort of had, like, I knew I was going to have two boys and two girls and have their names picked out and knew exactly which kind of house I was going to live in. Like, I was not that detail oriented. Mm -hmm. Um, But in my head, I just, you know, I came from a family of three. And for me, like, while that was a really nice size family, and I don't, you know, pretend to know the ins and outs and the discussions that my parents had about why it's funny that we're talking about this now. I I don't know why they decided on three as opposed to maybe that was something they decided or something that was decided for them. But for me, it always felt like my friend's houses that had more than three kids were just more fun. Like there was just more, there were more things happening, more people around. It just was more hustle and bustle. And I love that. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to have a house where everybody hung out. Like that, that was really, that was my goal growing up. So fast forwarding to when you started to, you know, when you got married, start to try all that stuff. Tell me about that. Right. So, you know, I didn't, in, in my community, people tend to get married in their early to mid twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, so I'm a physician by training. I'm a pediatrician and mm-hmm. I was in medical school during that time. And I had absolutely no interest in dating for marriage at that point, or even really even considering it. I was just kind of like, really buckling down in my studies and trying to make sure I was getting through medical school. I, I really couldn't handle very many distractions, frankly. Right. But towards the end of medical school in my fourth year, I had a lot more time and I started to think like, okay, now's the time. So I started dating and I met my husband within the year and we got married like almost a year later. In fact, okay. I think it was a year later. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because at that point I got married when I was 27, I kind of felt like I was ready, like behind the eight ball, so to speak. Mm. And even though I was a resident and I was working 90 hours a week, you know, we started to try right away. Okay. And we were lucky and blessed that I actually gave birth to my daughter. She was born two weeks after our first anniversary. Wow. So you know, we got pregnant very quickly and thought like, Hey, like, you know, life is good. Yeah. And but I was still a resident, still working 90 hours a week. And basically I was like, I can't have another kid right now. And in yeah. our community, I'm within the Orthodox Jewish community. Right. That's what I was going to say is I want to back up and talk about your community. Cause I know that uh, we'll get into all this. And I was supposed to have a baby.org, which is your organization, your website, your Instagram and all that. So tell us about, yeah, Orthodox Jewish community and right. how that. So, so in my, so I'll, I'll like back up and then sort of move forward. So in, in the community in which I live, the, the values are, as I was sort of referring to or alluding to before, values are that people tend to get married on the younger side, as I was saying, like early to mid twenties. And the value is on family and, and is on, I would say mid to large families, depending on where you are in the Orthodox community. If you are more to the right, meaning in the Hasidic community or in some of the other different more religious sects, some of those communities don't even believe in birth control at all. And, you know, these families are, you know, a family size of 13, 14, 15, you know, is not uncommon. Mm -hmm. Um, In the community in which I live, it's, the what's called the modern orthodox community, which mm-hmm. means that what we try to do is sort of straddle the modern world and still while still upholding the ideals and the tenets, the basic tenets of the religion. And so mm-hmm. if you're, you know, so in my my community, it's not uncommon for people to have higher degrees, higher educational degrees, while also 
having a very traditional lifestyle. So the value is still on community, but you're probably not having 14 kids if you're going to be a doctor. Like it's just not possible. Okay. I live in Williamsburg in Brooklyn and there's a huge Hasidic community. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I'd love to get into all that and like help educate people just about the different religions and beliefs and all that. Sure. So yeah, I mean, as I was saying, sort of within the Orthodox community, there's, you know, the the sects that are all the way to the right, the more religious community, the Hasidic community, or what's called, there's another sort of branch called the Yeshivish community. These are sects that really play, you know, the the family plays a primary role. And, you know, depending on which, even within the Hasidic community in Williamsburg, there are a number of different Hasidic sects. Mm -hmm. So to, there's, I I frankly couldn't even name them all, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, There are dozens and dozens of them. Mm -hmm. And each of them have their own sort of spin on different customs and different things that they follow and different pieces that are important to them. Mm -hmm. But the basic underlying tenant throughout all of orthodoxy is really the value that's placed on family Mm -hmm. and the value that's placed on children. Mm -hmm. And so when you get married, the assumption is, and and I'm talking specifically about the right-wing sex, but also where I fall in the community as well, you know, the assumption is that you're going to get married and you're going to have children, depending on how many children you have, you know, how many children you have will depend on sort of your communal norms. But if that's not happening right away, it means that there's a problem. So in the more right-wing world, when when you get married and if you don't have a child within the first year, year and a half, there's an issue. Mm-hmm. So it, it's assumed that there's an issue. And there are there are actually a few different Jewish organizations that deal primarily with those communities and they help those individuals get access to different doctors and physicians and clinics to start this kind of investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's, you know, there's lots of different things that can be said in regard to that. But the bottom line is that because the value is on children and having children right away. And the more children you have sort of the better, so to speak, that's why you see all of these young women in these clinics, because if they're married and they're not having a child in that time frame, then everybody's immediately rushing them off to the doctor because mm-hmm. it, it's felt that your life is not complete until you have a child. And and there is actually a specific Jewish law that says that until you have two children, and there's sort of a difference in opinion. Some people say that you fulfill this obligation if you have one boy and one girl, and other people say you fulfilled the obligation if you just have even two children of the same gender. Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of a little bit of a background. Did you watch Unorthodox on Netflix? And I'm so, curious uh, if you did, what your opinion was of it was. Yeah, so it's so interesting that you're asking that because my family and I sh- my family and I, our family is involved with this other Jewish organization called Makom. And what Makom is, it's a place. Makom literally in Hebrew means place. And it's a place where individuals who were brought up in the Hasidic community, where they can go to, quote, find their place within Judaism. So, for example, so I have did not see unorthodox because 
I'm so involved with this organization. So I kind of like live that life and I understand it. So I didn't need to see the movie, but as part of this organization, Makom, we, before Corona, we are considered to be one of their host families. And so we, for years already, would have individuals who came from Hasidic homes come to our home and spend the Sabbath with us. So the Sabbath is from Friday night until Saturday night, it's 25 hours. Mm -hmm. And to see what a quote, normal, and I'm using that word so loosely because if anybody thinks I'm normal, like it's kind of ridiculous, but (laughs) I quote, normal Jewish family looks like so that these individuals can be exposed to other forms of Judaism and not just their own and recognize that there is beauty in Judaism outside of their own community. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I know that unorthodox was, was a depiction of what one of these individuals went through and how how she left and how she felt about the community and her relation to the community afterwards. And I have personal relationships with lots of these individuals. Mm -hmm. So for me, like watching something sort of on a Hollywood screen was not helpful in that, like I live it in my real life. Right. But these individuals grow up in this very, very cloistered environment and have really almost no exposure to the outside world, Uh even to other forms of Judaism. Mm -hmm. So for these individuals coming into my home and spending 25 hours with myself and my family is like a complete shock for them. Yeah. What is the, what's the hope on your end when they come to spend the time with you? Like in addition to like enlightening them, are you trying to get them to leave the Hasidic like sect or, or just, it's just more educational or like it, right. It's really my role. Our role as a family as being one of these host families is really just to provide a warm supportive space for them to come and feel comfortable asking any questions about Judaism or about Mm -hmm. life that they want. Okay. And because, you know, the beauty of the Sabbath is that it's 25 hours without electricity, Mm -hmm. without sort of outside distractions. And it's really this beautiful time where you really get to bond with people and you get to know people in a way that's, you know, beyond the like, you know, three hours of a sit down at a coffee shop or, or a dinner. It's, it's 25 hours. I mean, obviously you're sleeping during that time too, but Mm -hmm. it's really sort of concentrated time where what we find is that over the course of that time period, people just get more and more comfortable and they learn about us and realize that we're very open to answering any questions and hearing any of their, their concerns and any of their, their worries or their, the places where they're struggling in their own life or in their community, and we give them answers without judgment. And mm-hmm. so the the real purpose of these experiences is for them to feel safe in asking anything that they want. Mm-hmm. What are the other rules of during the Sabbath? So no electricity, what else? So no electricity is sort of the big one. And that, so that means, you know, lights, TV, phones, you know, th- those are, it really means everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's no cooking. Um, you can't make anything from scratch. You can only sort of warm things up mm-hmm. that have already been cooked. You can't cook anything that's raw. So everything has to be prepared beforehand. I mean, there happens to be 39 different rules okay. that um, are on, on the Sabbath. Like some of them are, they, they're basically rooted in the olden times when people 
were like plowing the fields and and sowing and doing all sorts of other different activities. And those laws have been extrapolated to modern times. Mm-hmm. But basically, really what it's meant is to sort of take away all outside distractions and really have a period where you're focused on your family, the mm-hmm. people around your table, your community, and and that's it. And it's really, it's it's such a beautiful time. I can see that. So tell me about your, what's your take on like the pressures that in certain sects people might feel to have a lot of children, like we were talking about before. Like I'd yeah. love to hear your uh, opinion look, on that. Yeah, look, I mean, those pressures exist even within my own sect, frankly. Uh-huh. The pressures, you know, if, if you don't have children or if you only have a small family, one child, two children, and depending on, you know, in, in some of these more right-wing sex, if you only had four or five children, you would look, you would be looked down upon. And it, it's just not the communal norm. And the individuals who are going through these experiences and not having the like requisite number of children, they feel ashamed. Mm-hmm. They feel other in their community and, mm-hmm. and feel that they're constantly being put in a position where they're not comfortable. They're they're feeling, you know, that the community is catering towards the others as opposed to them and people not being sensitive. I mean, it's it's a huge part of the work that I do on I was supposed to have a baby is is really trying to one make these individuals feel more comfortable and let them know that they're not alone, even though that's very much the way that they feel. But in addition to that, the other piece of it is really the education and the advocacy for the rest of the community to have the rest of the community understand that there's nothing wrong with these individuals, right? Like infertility is a medical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Having a miscarriage or a stillbirth isn't anybody's fault. Like mm-hmm. it just happens. And so to to try to think about being more inclusive to these individuals and, and trying to make them feel as if they're, they are an integral part of the community because they are and not to shun them or, or to ostracize or even insensitively make remarks that make people feel bad without the, that wasn't necessarily their intention, but that's the effect of the comments that they're making. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I definitely want to unpack what you're doing with, I was supposed to have a baby a little bit more, but let's go back to your story and tell me, so you had your first child and then what happened? Right. So I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give you the very short synopsis one of the topics that you and I could talk about, you know, for for another hour, which we're not going to do here Mm -hmm. um, today is because I was a resident working 90 hours a week and wasn't ready yet to have another child. So we spoke to our rabbi and he agreed that for a certain limited amount of time, while I was finishing up my residency, that we could go on birth control. And so we did, but, and we did that for another year and then started trying to have our second and I couldn't get pregnant. And basically that turned into two and a half years of unexplained secondary infertility where both my husband and I were both tested and we went through Clomid and IUIs. I had a blighted ovum and eight week miscarriage in the midst Mm -hmm. of that. Then we went to injectables and IUIs. And basically during one cycle that I ended up having a cyst and not able to take more drugs that cycle. So we did sort of a natural cycle with IUIs and I got pregnant with my son. And so he was born about three and a half years after my daughter. 
Okay. And so that's, that was a long three and a half years though. And we can, we can talk, you know, extrapolate on that a little bit more and the details of it if you want to, but I have another question. So w- you talked to the rabbi to talk about getting on birth control. Did you need to talk to the rabbi to talk about doing assisted reproductive technology too? Is that part of your religion? Yeah. So, so it's interesting. So no, it, the answer is no. And yes. Okay. Um, the general sort of going to an RE and getting workups in terms of ultrasounds and blood work and all of this nonsense, like th- that kind of like initial nonsense, not an issue. Like in my sect to go to the doctor and get treated, like I don't have to ask anyone whether I'm allowed to go to a doctor and get treated. When we were starting to think about more invasive things, like when, so specifically in Jewish law, the man is not supposed to spill his seed. So meaning he's not allowed to masturbate and then ejaculate sort of without it having quote, a purpose. Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason why in terms of birth control in Orthodox Judaism, you're not allowed to use a condom Mm -hmm. because a condom catches the ejaculate and then it goes nowhere. Mm -hmm. You can use things like birth control pills, diaphragms, you can use IUDs. Like there are a thousand things you can use, but you can't use anything that's going to block the sperm from sort of getting where it needs to go. Like diaphragms like cover, but doesn't fully block. It still still goes there. Like, you know what I'm trying to say. Okay. So because a semen analysis is something where even though the end result is the semen is being analyzed in order to make sure that there isn't a problem or analyzed to be spun down to use for an IUI, it still is that act is quote, not for procreation immediately. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so in some sects, you need to get a rabbi's permission for a semen analysis and, or for an IUI. Okay. Um, So interesting. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating, but I, and, and also I'll also say that in some sects, like like we know that male infertility can be up to 50% of the reason why a couple is infertile. And yet in some sex, like basically they'll make the woman do every single possible test, even when everything is showing that there's nothing wrong with her before even getting to the man because Mm -hmm. of that specific law. Okay. So for us, once we knew we were going down the semen analysis route, like we basically just quickly asked a question and he was like, yeah, 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 of course. Like in our community, assisted reproductive technology is a very well-known and the rabbi in which we went to is an expert in assisted reproductive technology. And he understands exactly all the different pieces and Oh, is constantly up on the latest literature and the latest different techniques. And, you know, the minute we said something, he's like, yeah, yeah, do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, he was like, okay. like, this is not a question, like keep going. Right. So I'll just like, just complete, just finish my story very quickly. So from that point onwards, like thankfully getting pregnant, not our problem anymore as sort of as mysteriously as secondary infertility appeared was as mysteriously as it left. And so I had my son. And then, then when we were trying again, about a year later, I got pregnant within our first cycle, had my daughter. And then again, because of the norms of our community, thinking that like, thank God I have three children. I'm not interested in having 14, but three seems small to me. And as you remember in the beginning, what I was saying, like in my family, we had three and I always knew I wanted more than three. Mm-hmm. So we started trying for our fourth. And then again, got pregnant very quickly. 
And I inexplicably lost that pregnancy at 16 weeks. Oh, um, basically so just, sorry. thank you. Just walked into the appointment and there was no heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And That's the worst. It, horrible. And, you know, to make a very, very long story short, unfortunately that happened three more times exactly at either 16 or 17 weeks oh um, in the span of two and a half years. Oh my God. Amy. Um, yeah. I, it was, I, I mean, look, it was insane. It was horrific. It mm-hmm. was, I, I mean, it was so, so, so dark. I basically like didn't leave my house. Mm-hmm. It was a horrible, 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 horrible place. And I was in a horrible place and right. we, you know, being a physician and, you know, initially they just basically said to me like the first time, oh, it's a fluke, try again. By the second time, it was clear that there had to be something going on. So we started doing this, you know, massive investigation, seeing lots of different doctors. No one had an answer for us. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you see basically- the immunologist cell? Right. So that was kind of the, after the fourth loss was when we headed down the reproductive immunology route. But initially it was more, it was genetics, it was hematology, it mm-hmm. was infectious. It was like, there were a thousand different possibilities, yeah. um, and all of which I had tested negative for. Okay. Quick um, question for these sure. four losses. So they were all 16 weeks or beyond, which like right. you said, all is horrific. I'm so exactly. sorry. And you said you had gotten pregnant with the first loss on your first cycle. Was that an IVF cycle or do you just mean no. cycle of no. natural trying? Yeah. All they were all natural. These were all natural, unassisted pregnancies. Correct. Okay. Correct. Do you have a stance on, or like a religious take on testing embryos? Yes. So I, I mean, so I should say no. I don't have a. Uh, I'm trying to. I don't specifically have a religious stance. It's it for me. The it was never a question. I'm a physician. I need. I need knowledge. I'm a science person. Of course, we were going to test these embryos. I don't even remember, frankly, if we even asked about it, if we asked our rabbi whether we could. For me, it was a no-brainer. And all of my embryos tested, they were all normal, perfectly genetically normal. Two were boys and two were girls. Mm. And it it was clear that it was something about my body that was rejecting these pregnancies. Mm. And after you know the third pregnancy, they put me on some blood thinners, even though I didn't have a blood clotting disorder. The fourth pregnancy, they put me on an even higher dose of blood thinners. And still, I still lost those two pregnancies. And then basically I turned to my husband and I was like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm finished. Like I, I, I can't, I, I, I'm, I'm so done. Mm-hmm. I cannot even begin to do this anymore. I'm wrecked psychologically, physically, hormone, like every part of me is completely wrecked. Mm-hmm. How is he and doing? Like, how are you guys doing as a couple? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I had three children at home. Like, let's just like go back to that for five seconds. Right. And we were both trying to manage like what we could. I, I would basically, you know, I would get the kids ready for school and then collapse in bed all day long. Oh. He would go to work. I mean, he he's... He, he obviously was very upset and broken up about it, but he's not a person who wears these kinds of things on his sleeve. Like it was more like 
he still like, he took the time off with me, like always came to my procedures, stayed with me for the next day or two, but like he went back to work, like, and I was in bed. Like yeah. That. So that you was, were able to take time off from your job as a physician? Yeah. So, so to backtrack just um, another five seconds after my second loss out of four, I left pediatrics. I left my job. Mm, I, I okay. couldn't keep taking care of other people's babies while I was struggling to have my own, even though I had three children, like it was just, it was just too hard. That makes sense. Um, And so I I just left. I, and I said, you know, uh, if I'm back, I'll come back at some point, but I'm gone. And I'm very lucky, obviously, because, you know, my husband works in a field in which I, we didn't need my salary. And so I was, I am very blessed. Mm -hmm. What does he do? he, he works in finance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very blessed that I was able to take that time and psychologically heal because I was a mess. And so then, how did you find support in that time? Because a whole, you know, big part of your, I was supposed to have a baby is, is you've kind of pioneering the space, right. In the Jewish community, yes. where a lot of people yes. aren't talking about this. So were you finding support? Were you just fledgling on your own or like, what was it? What did it look like for you? Yes. So thank you. Thank you for those kind words. I, you know, look, this was, this was between eight and 10 years ago. So, you know, that time, like, you know, social media didn't exist. I mean, I think Facebook existed, but basically, you know, in the, in the, in the the way that it's utilized now, you know, social media did not exist. Yeah. Same when I was trying, you know, for my second one, it was about, I started about eight years ago. So I feel the same and I felt super alone. In so terms alone. of no community, no Instagram, all right. that stuff. Nothing, nothing. There happened to be, there was, and, and I talk about this person actually on my website and I've spoken about her during many events. There was one woman in my life, her name is Rebecca, who she had three second trimester losses mm-hmm. right around the same time that I was having mine. Mm-hmm. And we basically kept each other from going insane. Like, I I mean, she, she was the one who I credit with any possibility of my, like, you know, getting out of bed in the morning. Like it was because of Rebecca. She, she got it. I could cry and scream and vent and, and whatever. And she could do the same. And we both just had each other. How did you Um, find her? So she's the sister of a good friend of mine. I was always more friendly with this, my friend, and then I knew about Rebecca, but we, we connected that way. Okay. So it wasn't online. It was like in person. In in person. Yes. Yes. But you're right. The, did I know there, I, what I will say is that there's another Jewish organization called a time. They've actually, I, I think I can't remember what they stand for. Something like a time for, oh, I can't remember medical. Some, I can't remember what they stand for, but mm-hmm. a time is, is, was originally founded over 30 years ago, specifically f- to support the Jewish community through infertility. Now they've branched out and now they cover all sorts of medical diagnoses beyond infertility and loss and endometriosis and pelvic pain and all sorts of other things. But that was the initial thrust of their organization. And they had one of these like anonymous online forums, forums. Yeah. Like a message forum. Like those message forums where you could like, right. You could create an anonymous ID and you could post. And so 
that was where I got online support because, you know, it was like, I was having all these miscarriages and people would say like, oh, you should go to this doctor. Or, oh, I had some too. Yeah. It was the, these message forums and I got a lot of support there, but not like, oh, I, you know, I'm crying, you're crying support. Like that was Rebecca. It was the oh, there's someone else that's had second trimester miscarriage. Great. Who did you see? Who did you see? Like that was the kind of support, but those were my lifelines. It was Rebecca and this, this message forum. Mm -hmm. Okay. So after your fourth loss, when you said, turn to your husband and said, you know, I'm done. Did you, was that the end of your, your infertility journey? So yes and no. I mean, it was the end for a while, um, for a number of years. And then we, I, I basically just turned to him one day and said, I think we need to do this one more time. And when we do it one more time, I need to sort of throw the kitchen sink at it. Like mm -hmm. anything that anyone had ever mentioned to me, again, like I'm a science person. I need data. I need I need people to show me studies. I, I'm not just going to, uh, or at least before this, like I was not just going to stand on my head every second Tuesday and only eat red foods. Like I just, I can't mm -hmm. do that. <laughs> I need to, like, I need to see the data, mm -hmm. but I felt like I was leaving this like possibility dangling in the air. Like I hadn't given it everything I possibly could. Like I felt like psychologically, the only way for me to move on from this stage in my life was to know that I had done everything that I could, that I possibly could. And if it was possible, if it wasn't dangerous, if, if it was financially feasible, like all of those pieces. Mm -hmm. And if I had known, if I had done everything I possibly could and then still wasn't able to have another child, then I'd be okay. Mm -hmm. With lots of therapy and lots of, you know, lots of time, I would be okay. But at least I had known that I had given it everything I possibly could. So by everything, do you mean, are you turning to ART at this point or still no? So, so still no, like, okay. like basically no, in the sense that we had many meetings with reproductive endocrinologists trying to get a handle on what the story was and they supported our natural pregnancy. Like I was on all sorts of stuff before we quote, were trying. And then I was on all the progesterone and all this other nonsense, like in the two weeks, like in the two week wait, but it was like they were supporting us, but they were like, we have no clue. Like doing like IVF is not going to guarantee you anything. So what's the purpose? Mm -hmm. And they're like, you can get pregnant on your own. That's not your problem anymore. So what are we really doing for you there? I'm like, well, just give me something to make me feel better. Like uh, anything anyway. So we went down that route and we, you know, again, got pregnant quickly and at this point I was 39 and we get to the first ultrasound and there are two, which was like insane. Like I had dropped two eggs and like, here they were. I mean, at that point we didn't know if I had dropped two eggs or whether they had split, but I mean, you'll hear the end of the story. Basically I spent that entire pregnancy petrified, petrified, mm -hmm. petrified, I, until the day that they were born, I was not convinced that they were coming out alive. Yeah. We told not a single person about the pregnancy. Wow. Um, our parents finally at some point saw us at different points and like guessed that I was pregnant, but we didn't tell a single soul that we were having twins. It was just like, it was too much. It was mm -hmm. psychologically, it was just, we were holding too much. I was holding too much. Mm -hmm. And 
I have seven-year-old boy-girl twins who are delicious and healthy and they are my miracles. And conceived naturally, but with all the kitchen sink things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is crazy. It's crazy. It's a crazy, crazy, crazy story. Talk to me, talk to us about the people listening about like the PTSD of infertility, like why you're saying you didn't tell anybody and why, you know, you were, you guys kept it so close to the vest. Look, I, I mean, when, when you've lost, when you've lost a pregnancy, even if, even if it's a pregnancy that you haven't been dreaming about, like just losing that possibility of life, like it does something to you. It it just changes you. And for us, these were very wanted pregnancies. Like we wanted to add to our family and every time I would get to either 16 or 17 weeks and I would just, I would go in and there was no heartbeat. Like I never was bleeding. I never had cramping. I, there was no indication that these pregnancies were not good ones. And I, I I was just, I was just a complete mess. Mm -hmm. I was a complete mess. I literally did not leave my apartment. I started having panic attacks around the 16, 17 week mark. I was seeing a therapist. I was seeing a psychiatrist. I I was a mess, Mm -hmm. a mess, a mess, a mess. And I I just, I had trouble sleeping. I had trouble eating. I, I, it's the, the PTSD of losing pregnancies and losing them in sort of that traumatic way of finding out, you know, that you're, what you thought was this viable pregnancy in one second and then is not alive in the next second. Mm -hmm. Just hearing those words over and over again, there's no heartbeat. Like it just, it, it just changes you. Yeah. It changes you. Completely. And I, it, and you know, people say things like, if you don't think about the pregnancy, if you don't attach yourself emotionally to the pregnancy, then it's easier when you lose them. And if you lose them, when you lose them, right. I'm like, I can tell you it's not easier. Like I tried every which possible way. I never, during those four losses, like I would say after the the, the second, because during the second pregnancy, we were still hopeful because the first one we thought was, was a fluke. So I will say that during the third and fourth pregnancies, like I never, I'm a physician. Like I never looked at the ultrasound screens. I never took home pictures of my mm-hmm. ultrasounds. I didn't, like my kids didn't know I was pregnant. I didn't. Were you not that. showing with twins? I, I no. So with the twins, I, oh, that's a whole other story. I can tell you a funny story about my son, my son actually. But I just like, I wore these very baggy clothes and I just like, even in my house and I just couldn't bear having anybody talk about it. And but it doesn't matter. Like yeah. the moment you hear those words, like your heart breaks into 4,000 million pieces all over again. Completely. And you're just as wrecked as you were before. Yeah. I think it's, a it's, lot of people will be able to relate to that. So thank you for saying that. Wow. You went, you've gone through so much. It's yeah, it's been, it's, it's been a lot. Yes. A lot. And, yes. and look, I, I think that's the reason why, you know, when, my twins were two. And I finally sort of emerged from that, like 
bubble of like, my brain is not functioning. I'm taking care of two babies. I have three other children at home. Like when I was finally ready, they were old enough. They were more independent. When I was finally ready to go back to work, I started interviewing for pediatric jobs again. My Mm -hmm. old job was long since gone, given over to nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. Mm -hmm. And I was asked actually to speak locally in one of the one of the synagogues here about my experience. They they were, this was now six years ago. They were doing a program, an afternoon program on infertility and loss awareness, pregnancy loss awareness. And so I was asked to speak to the loss piece. There was someone else who was speaking about the infer- infertility piece. And after that, first of all, I mean, I was, <laughs> I could also like, it was the first time I had spoken publicly about my experiences. And even though my losses were in the second trimester, most of my losses were in the second trimester and people knew I was pregnant and therefore people knew that I then lost those babies to get up in front of 150 women and spill my guts was like, it was just, it, it felt like I was like reopening the wound and I like for two days beforehand, I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I was so nervous about Mm -hmm. speaking about it. But afterwards, I felt this sense of power. Like there were so many people that came up to me afterwards and then emailed me afterwards and said, like, I'm so glad you spoke about this. Like I've had this and I've had that. And, you know, like once you open up the floodgates, like everything comes rushing in and it just like, I kept thinking to myself, like, why is this, why does it have to be this way? Right? Like why, why in the Jewish community are things so closeted and, and people don't talk about this? Like, why is it that way? Mm -hmm. And I was already starting to see things on social media. Like, again, we're talking about five years ago, six years ago. And I, got in touch with, someone put me in touch with this other Jewish organization called Nechama Comfort, which deals specifically with pregnancy loss. And I worked for them for three years and did all sorts of things for them, speaking, support groups. I ran support groups, did individual counseling, group counseling. I ran their social media. I did fundraising. I did speaking. I did lots of things for them. Mm-hmm. But what occurred to me over that time was, and I, as I started seeing more and more and more accounts on social media talking about this, and we, we could talk about the pioneers of the, you know, Dr. Jessica Zucker, the I had a miscarriage. Like we can talk about right. those accounts, right? Who were really the pioneers in, in first, you know, bringing this to the fore in terms of on social media and really to the general space. But I felt like nobody is doing it for the Jewish community. Right. There's lots and lots and lots of accounts that are talking about this. But and while we know that the pain and the suffering and the the shame and the taboo all, all of those pieces are universal, there are things that are specific to the Jewish community. The the large families, the emphasis on family, the, the emphasis on children, the different holidays that specifically are child-centric. There, there are so many things that are the unique to the Jewish space that I felt like there, there was a void here. Mm-hmm. And because of my experiences, both personally and professionally, even at that point, I knew that I could, I could really make a difference here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was the origin, this, you know, little idea in my head 
And that was how I was supposed to have a baby was started. Right. So when did it start? And did you have any like blowback from the community or people that were like, you shouldn't be talking about this? So it started, I, it officially launched on Instagram in the beginning of August in 2019. And, you know, we've got incorporated by the state of New York and officially got our 501c3 about six months ago, I think a little bit more than that now, but no, actually I did not. I did not get any blowback from the community. Mm -hmm. Instead, what I got and what I continue to get on almost a daily basis is, oh my goodness, I'm so glad this exists. Mm -hmm. Why hasn't this existed Mm -hmm. for all of the years that I was suffering? Why did I now just find out about this? Why, 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 why? Mm -hmm. Thank God this exists now because it's giving us all such a support. That's awesome. And I'm just great. I'm just grateful to be able to do it. Right. Right. Tell me about some of the specific people that you've met and has it started more of a movement in the Jewish community? Like, are there other accounts, like a lot more accounts now? Yeah. Look, there, there were, you know, there, there are, I, I can't even, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to be, I'll give you a, a small preview. I'm actually going to be running a Jewish fertility virtual summit in February. The date has yet to be determined. It's mm-hmm. got, uh, hopefully we're going to be setting that this week, but there are 12 organizations in the United States alone that deal with fertility, but they just weren't on Instagram and they weren't they, all they were doing on Instagram or all they were doing on social media was basically just advertising their work or mm-hmm. fundraising. Mm-hmm. They weren't being supportive to the community. Yeah, There were other individuals who had individual accounts in the Jewish community who were anonymously starting to talk about this and anonymously and publicly were talking about this. But since I was supposed to have a baby has started, definitely there's been an emergence of many more accounts, both anonymous and not anonymous of individuals who are talking about it. And that is my biggest thrill because I can't do this work alone. We can't do this work alone. Like, you know, you work Mm -hmm. in this space. Like there are hundreds of thousands of accounts that are talking about infertility and loss and all aspects of the, the, the journey. It is my biggest dream to have as many people as possible to be doing this work and to be talking about this because the more we talk about it, the less alone people feel. All right, friends, thank you so much for listening. And Amy, thank you so much for explaining all of that getting into all the details. I found that so interesting. I hope you guys did too. As you may know, I set out this year, I had a word of 2021 that I wanted to kind of focus the podcast around and that word was inclusion. So as always, I'm trying to tell tons of different stories, show many, many different viewpoints and, you know, shed light on some things that don't get a lot of press or acknowledgement or recognition. So I hope anybody listening to this feels a little bit less alone after hearing Amy's story and everything she's doing. And I also wanted to tell you guys that Fertility Rally is the community that I co-founded with Blair Nelson of Fab Fertility. So if you guys are looking for a community, a place for amazing support groups, awesome events, we are around and we would love to have you join our fam. So shoot me a note or DM me 
or reach out in any of the various ways and we will hook you guys up. All right. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.